This is Andrew Hall, host of Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode is Kevin Kamen, musician, former U.S. Navy corpsman, and UFO abductee. In 1982, Kevin had an experience that changed his life and simultaneously upended his perception of reality and solidified his belief system. We talk about the details of his experience and the knowledge he gained during and after this encounter. Then we talk about the negative and positive effects the event had on his life. Kevin's experience lasted about an hour and involves time travel, a trip to the moon, an encounter with giant insectoid-looking aliens, and images of the apocalypse. It's a fascinating journey and one worth hearing. Hi, this is Kevin Cameron, musician, former Navy corpsman, UFO abductee, and you're listening to Dare to Hand Radio. So let's talk a little bit more about your background before we get into the experience that you had, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, would you tell me uh, what part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up in the Midwest, just south of Chicago, in a town called Kankakee, Illinois. It's 60 miles straight south of Chicago. So you've pretty much been in that area your whole life other than your military experience, right? Yes. I was born in Indiana, but we moved to Illinois, I think by the time I was four three or four, and then grew up, you know, in Kankakee, went to high school, worked at the hospital there. And my job working at the hospital got me interested in the medical field. So I I joined the Navy right after I graduated high school. And I became a hospital corpsman. Uh, I joined in February. I joined on February the 28th, 1973. Well, thank you for your service because I went back in in 1978. And then um, I got assigned to the USS San Bernardino, a tank landing ship. And the tank landing ship has got a flat bottom, and uh, it goes right up onto the beach, and the front end opens up, and you can offload tanks, trucks, and other um, vehicles. And we carried uh, uh, approximately 300 Marines already for combat. And I was a grunt corpsman. So you would have gone into combat with those guys? Oh, I could have. Matter of fact, see, our ship, once we go on the beach, we're not coming off. So um, in my mind, that says target, big X right here, right? Home in on this. So I guarantee you I'm going to be as far away from that thing as I can be. I'm going to join the Marines because I'd spent time with the Marines and I knew how to operate with the Marines and I would be a lot safer with the Marines once we got onto the beach than I would be with the Sabres. Sorry, but that's just the way I feel about it. And hey, every man for himself. Well, and from, you know, I was not in the Navy. I was in the Air Force and then I did a, a tour in Army National Guard. 
but uh, my understanding is that the the medics for the Marine Corps are Navy corpsmen. Is that correct? That's right. Now the, the Navy has the the Marines have no medical personnel of their own. All their medical personnel come from the Navy. And I wanna I found that out the hard way when I got assignment to Camp Pendleton Marine Corps base, where I went through eighty four oh four medical field training and that was roughly twelve weeks long. Was that basically combat medical training? Yes. Wearing a gear, going out, hiking, sleeping in the woods, being a marine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But really that's in in my opinion, that's the fun part of being a grunt. Living living out in the element. Oh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, most most guys do. Most people do that have served uh, enjoy that that time that they get to spend outdoors. <clears throat> Is that something that all Navy corpsmen have to go through that no. training? No. Okay, so you were you were one of the people that was selected to, if need be, go into combat with those guys. Yeah. Um, and then how did, how long was your second tour or did you stay in until you retired? Well, I, I, I had planned on staying in until I got retired, but due to circumstances and that's a totally another story and I don't want to get into it, but, um, I, I went back in in 78. I spent, um, six years on this, uh, ship. I was a corpsman on there for uh, four and a half years. So is there any, any fond memories you have of your time in the Navy that you'd like to share? Well, let's see. I was stationed in Philadelphia for two years, and I, I got quite the education uh, being in a major city for the first time. I've seen all kinds of crap. I worked as a, I worked on ambulances, and so I've seen a lot of gross and disgusting things. And, and I had seen more and done more by the time I was 25 than a lot of people will ever do living a 60-year lifespan. And I knew it, all right, because of the unique experiences that I had. I watched a man blow his brains out with a gun. I delivered babies. I had a six-week-old baby die in my arm. I watched three people burn to death in a car. Um, you know, all these educational experiences that, you know, you never knew what you were going to get from day to day. So being a hospital corpsman, it was like, it was very interesting. Uh, I, I did sick call on a daily basis at the dispensary. And then um, I got transferred to Camp Under Marine Corps Base where I went through the training there. And then when I graduated with my training, um, I had uh, become a qualified paramedic in um, California. And I was, I was assigned to an ambulance crew uh, right out from graduation. And I did that all the way up until uh, the day I got out in 77. And um, that was a unique experience. Uh, the very first night I worked on the um, ambulance crew, I saved a heroin overdose's life. And... That, that was a calamity of errors in itself. I mean, you want to talk about a story that's hard to believe. Uh, and everything I would say would be fact, all right? And it was just a big clusterfuck. But it turned out all right, all right? But I started at 3.30 in the morning, got over with around 5. 
5 p.m. or 5 a.m.? 5 a.m. Okay. An hour and a half working on the patient, getting into the emergency room and all that. I got my ass chewed out. I, I got I, I got threatened to get rolled up. I broke um, the microphone in the ambulance, so they had no communication with us. And so it just caused a calamity of errors. I mean, it, it was one of those, you're not going to believe. It, it's like the movie Spinal Tap. Are you familiar with that? I have seen parts of it, and I heard many, many quotes from the movie. Well, I know the movie, but I've never seen yeah, it. Yeah, well, all the, well the movie Spinal Tap is basically a story about anything and everything that can go wrong with a rock band. That, that's what the movie is. Anything and everything that can go wrong. I, uh, you know, to a typical rock band. And, and it's 90% true. You know, and, and me being in a band, I know some of the, I know some of the circumstances. So, yeah. well, I do, I, I do want to get into your, your music background a little bit too, but before we, we go down that road, would you, um, Talk about your time after the military. Did you continue uh, working in the medical field, or did you go into a completely different line of work after that? Uh, I stayed in the medical field for two years. And then uh, once my uh, paramedic license expired, I never renewed it. I, I, I changed careers. <laughs> Do you ever miss working in that field? No. I have lots and lots and lots of memories. And no, I don't miss it. I'm around it all the time because of my medical problems. And I see the changes that have been made and everything else going on in the medical field. And I'm glad I'm not in it anymore, especially with this COVID crap. The, uh, the, the musical background that you have, how early on did you find out that you were musically inclined? Oh, uh, 18, 19 years old. I have a twin brother who had been playing the guitar since he was 14. And then I, 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 I took up the guitar at uh, 18. And there was something for me to do while I was in the Navy, when I had spare time. All right, so I started to learn how to play the guitar. Well, after my brother and I, my brother went into the Air Force. All right, and he spent four years in the Air Force. But he went in in August of 73. So when he got out in August of 77, we put together a band, started writing songs and going out and performing. What kind of music was it? Well, the originals were all written about military life. We were writing a um, CD that was a musical tribute to the Vietnam veteran. We, we, we wrote a bunch of songs, and we finally got our CD put out in the year 2010, and then we had a calamity. Well, we had all of our equipment stolen. All the CDs got stolen, except for about uh, the first hundred of them. And we'd only gotten rid of a hundred of them. Uh, we'd only been back in Kankakee for about three days, and we got rid of close to a hundred of them. All right, and they came a hundred to a box, and. We, we put the rest of them in storage out in California, along with all of our gear, which got broken into 
and everything got taken out of there. So clean, they swept the fucking thing clean. Not one thing remained in that spot. And, and we're talking, we're, look, we're talking keyboards from the 60s and the 70s. You know, we're talking vintage gear. We, we took good care of the equipment that we had. And we accumulated quite a bit. We had like four or five different keyboards. We had um, about nine guitars, about seven amps. Plus, we had a, uh, I had a four-track tape recorder. And we were making records for other people off of the, you know, I would, we would record them. And then uh, they, would, they would go out and get cassettes made with the, you know, with the master tapes that we gave them. We were a little bit into the music scene in Kent Key, you know, helping people make music. And we ran sound for a few bands that would come through every now and then. But we mainly concentrated on making our own music. It took us into 2010 to get enough music to come out with a CD, originals. When we went in to record it, turns out we had enough for two CDs. So our debut CD is a two CD set with about 22 songs all together. And there are two songs that are on there that were given to us to put on there, you know, to help sustain the cause. Them guys went out and sacrificed a lot, and they never got credit for it. They got yelled at, screamed at, pissed on. You know, they got treated like crap when they came back. They were never given any acknowledgement. You know, I'm having people coming up today and telling me, thank you for my service. And that's because I'm wearing a Vietnam-era veteran hat. And so they do come up and they thank me today. But they didn't do that in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. You know, and I think it's interesting that the attitude toward that has changed that much, you know, since then. You know, we're talking something that's almost 50 years old. Yeah, that was a pretty sore spot in history for uh, for the U.S., the way that those Vietnam veterans were treated. And I think it's a noble and a very caring thing that you did to create that music. When you and your brother were making music, uh, I can only imagine it must have been, uh, you guys had some great times together. I'm sure there's challenges that you had to overcome as well. N not barring the, the tragedy or the, the calamities, as you called it, of losing all your, or getting all your music and your instruments taken from you. But I'm, I'm sure you had some good times. Yeah, they're, they're, we had a lot more bad times than we had good times. Well, that's called life, right? Well, it's called family, too. That's true, yeah. You know, so, I mean, look, you know, I mean, it, it, there was nothing spectacular about what we did. You know, we're, we're just like 40 million other people out there, you know, recording music. You know, there's, there's people doing it every day. You know, and and we had a gift, and we wrote a few songs, and and I feel that a couple of them were pretty decent songs. Now I didn't agree with all the songs. I didn't agree with everything that was said. However, I did my part. Well, at least you did it. That's what's the important part. Is you know, you guys made the effort. You put forth the uh, the 
the energy to to produce it and you guys completed the project yeah if anything else is never accomplished in life that's one accomplishment i made so you, you started the band in 77 is that right somewhere around there we didn't really we we didn't really form a band we didn't call it a band or anything because it was just me and my brother and we were doing recording lots of multiple tracks and all of that you know and we were just concentrating on making the music uh, what what was it that made you decide to go back into the Navy? Oh, I, I, I got out for a year, year and a half. And I figured that I was going to do 20 years and retire. So you were in, this is your second tour. Talk about the friend of yours that you had come in contact with that was probably the main reason why you had this experience. How'd you, how did you meet him and how did that friendship start to form? Well, I'm from Kankakee, Illinois. 60 miles straight south of Chicago. This kid's name is Jeff Reich. Jeff Reich. He grew up in Gary, Indiana, which is on the south shore of uh, Lake Michigan, which is um, about 20 miles from Chicago and about 50 miles from Kankakee. I, I joined my ship in the Philippines. It took 28 hours to get to my ship from Kankakee once I got started on the trip. And most of it was flying. And so we're talking over a day, you know, we're talking a day, over a day journey, you know, over a 24-hour period, all right? That's how long it took. That's how far away it was. And he was the first person I met on the ship. And so we started talking, and we became pretty good, fast friends. And he felt like he was, you know, hey, I'm from Kansas City, you're from Gary. We're like 12,000 miles away from anywhere neither one of us lives. So, you know, you're like a homeboy, you know. You're right out of my neighborhood as far as I can see it. I get I get that, yeah. That that would be that would be a solid connection with somebody from back home more or less. Right. So we had a we had a firm bond which we established early on. And we spent a lot of time together. You know, we'd go on liberty together, uh, whatever port we went to. You know, he was, you know, there was a small clique of us, about six or seven of us that hung out all together all the time. And we always went everywhere together and hung out together and stuff. And he was one of them. All right. Uh, he had been to my house. He had met my wife. You know, he'd been there for supper and watch TV and all kinds of things like that. And I'm talking about my house in San Diego once my ship came back from overseas. Uh, my wife and I were living there, and he was, he was one of my friends that would come over. And not too many people would come over to my house, but he was one who came over on a regular basis. Right. So, you know, he was well-known well-received, and, you know, he acted pretty normal for the most part. But every now and then he did act occasionally uh, what I would call a quirk or, you know, anomalous, and just a little bit different. Um, not that much different, but things that, you know, raise questions in my eyebrow about certain things. Can you can you describe one of those quirks? Well, okay. He was he, 
he he and his French fries with mayonnaise. Uh, <laughs> that's the way they eat them in France, though. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm never eat, yeah, I never that's, ate. That's normal. Uh, well, that's normal well, in France. I never had French fries with mayonnaise. I always had it with ketchup. That's what I grew up. Sure, on. me too. I, I wouldn't put mayonnaise on it to save my life, but that's that is the way that people do eat it in France. It's a normal thing. Go okay, continue. Well, he's not from France though. So, my my point is, I I thought that was an unusual quirk. All right, that's not what's normal. Uh, if you understand what I mean by that, whenever we walk around in these towns, and there'd be people making food and selling it on the street. And I remember one time he's like, oh, look, fish heads. And he got himself a great big bowl of fish heads. And all of this is, is <laughs> the, the heads of fish. That's all it is, the head. There's no other parts. That's a little odd. Is Was it a soup, fish head soup? Yeah, and he was loving it. He ate like three bowls of it. And I wanted to throw up, you know, watching them eat these big, oh, I, I, you know, eyeballs and all. I, I wanted to throw up. Yeah, that doesn't sound tasty at all. So, okay, so he had a quirky way of of eating. Was there anything else that stood out about him that you thought was odd? Well, he'd make these weird-ass comments that didn't make sense about different situations that would show up and stuff. And he'd sit there and he'd say something so so far out of left field it was out of the ballpark. You know, it was like, and I would just look at him with a question mark in my mind, going, where the hell you come up with that at? What's that got, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense at all. And, and there, was, there was a few times when when things like that happened. And I never did understand it. And I never did get to understand it. You know, and, and to me, that made him a little bit different. You know, the way that he would react to certain situations, so totally different than what a normal human being would react. I mean, would you call him your best friend at that time? Yes, close to it. If not my best friend, my, one of my one of my top best friends at the time. I mean, I, I never stopped hanging out with him because of that. I found him to be a unique individual, and we're all unique in our own way. I just couldn't understand where his thinking was coming at for some of the things that the way that he would react, all right? Because it's totally, totally unexpected. After you've known him for some time, he shares a strange and kind of scary, uh, unbelievable story. you got to remember this. This was back in 1982. We lived in a different time frame. The world didn't, wasn't the way it is today. You, you didn't talk about flying things. Especially if you were in the military, all right? Unless you wanted to get evaluated by a psychologist. Uh, how long had you known him before he started talking about UFOs? Uh, about three and a half years. And he had never mentioned it before then? Never. Never. And, and he came down to my space. Now, see, here's what he did not know. I did a book report on high, in high school on UFOs. It took me six months. I researched it very graphically. I got it very detailed into it because it was half my grade for my English class. So, you know, I did a book report on it. It didn't matter to me. I mean, I knew. I knew. I had knowledge of it. But he starts talking about having an abduction experience himself. 
that's a totally different subject. And this was kind of out of the blue when he brought it up? Yes. How, how did that conversation start? Do you remember? I'm down in my space, and I'm doing paperwork. So I'm down there on a Sunday night. It's around 7 o'clock at night, and he comes down. He used to come down all the time and talk to me while I was working in the office. So that was nothing unusual there. The thing that made this unusual was what the subject became. The reality of the fact that this guy is telling me about an abduction experience that he had had. He knew by telling me this, I could send him to the psychiatrist. You know, he was taking a chance by doing that. Okay, so he starts talking about all of this stuff that happened in his past. And that he's been abducted since he was eight years of age. All right, so now I know him, and he's about, oh, he's about 23 by this time, all right, because I've known him almost four years. So, you know, I figured he's at least 18, he'd be 22. In other words, you know, a long time since he was eight. And that he was still having these. Um, contacts and they would come and get him and they would take him away and then he would talk about different places that he went to and, and, and it sounds like Star Trek right and of course I'm not buying any of it because you know in 1982 look how advanced we were you know we had time travel we were going everywhere you know because we'd gone to the moon and never gone back you know, so, you know, I am kind of taking it all with a grain of sand. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever, whatever. So, wait, let me, let me back you up just a second. You said in, in the 1980s we had time travel? No, we didn't. But I'm talking now, he, he's talking time travel. He's talking about going to other planets, you know. He's talking... He, He's talking about going to other galaxies. Other galaxies. You know? I mean, you know, stuff I couldn't really comprehend. You know? I mean, but too far to believe. You understand what I mean by that? So what was your reaction to it when he, was, when he told you this? Did you say anything to him? Oh, yeah. I was asking him all kinds of questions. You know? I was like, Really? Well, how did you get there? Oh, we went on this whatever craft, blah, 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 blah. All right. Out of everything that he told me, and this is in almost three hours of conversation, the only real thing I remember was that on one of the planets that he went to, he said the sunflowers grow to be 50 feet tall. With the sunflower dish itself, being a roughly 30 feet in diameter. And he said that the sunflower seeds, and these are dark, dark red sunflowers with dark, dark red and orange leaves. And the sunflowers themselves being red. And that the sunflower seeds were about the size of a thumb. And I was just trying to imagine in my mind how many sunflower seeds there are on one of them sunflowers. 
uh, 30 foot in diameter, you know, that's um, you know, what, 10, 20,000 seeds on that thing. Well, if the, if the seed was the size of your hand. Your thumb. Oh, the seed was the size of your thumb, yeah. is what he said? Yes. I was trying to do the math on that, you know, and I was thinking that that was pretty unique. That, And that's the only thing out of all the strange and unbelievable things that he said that I remember because I kind of really believed that that was possible. You know, that he was on a planet with dark red sunflowers that grew 50 feet tall. What did what were you thinking? Well, I was thinking that it was an incredible story that he was telling me, and that did you think he was lying? No, I didn't. I, I really believe that he believed what he was telling me, but I didn't jump to conclusions. Uh, I, I didn't label this guy as nuts or anything. I just thought it was unusual and you know intriguing, uh, and of course I wanted to learn more. Well, for sure. So, but did you did you during the time you were talking with him? I, I'm sorry for breaking the flow no, of your. Go of ahead. Your, no, no, go ahead. Oh, okay. Did did you ever ask him why he was telling you this? No. No, I didn't. Okay. Okay. Continue, please. All right. But I also knew. Look, I'm going to have to send this guy to an eval. I knew that. All right. I was formulating that plan while I was discussing this with him. You understand? Yeah. How did that make you feel? Yeah. Well, it kind of made me feel weird. But look, I'm not playing favorites. I'm only doing my job. And I tried to be one of the best corpsmen in the world. And so I was doing what I felt was my responsibility. All right. And, and I had a few days to formulate it because we're out at sea. Who knows when we're going to get to port again. And who knows if I can even send him to a psychiatrist at the next port we go to. So that's not like a major thing that I had to worry about. You understand? I had time to formulate and discuss things with him. And so I could write up a good evaluation when I sent him. Yeah. yeah and um, you, you better have your facts in, in a row because when you submit that report, somebody's going to look at you kind of weird and think uh, if you're making it up, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, there's a stigma to that. Did, uh, how, how long had it been, or did he mention how long it had been since the last time he had been abducted? Yes, I asked him. He told me. It had, it had been about a month. He, but, but I guess it happened as often as he wanted to. You know, all he's got to do is think about them, and they'll come for him. You know, the thought out there, and there he is. He's connected with them. Okay, so now this, this is on a Sunday night. Well, our conversation lasted probably for about nine, nine thirty, and that's when I was knocking off to go to bed. And so, well, I went to bed, but I couldn't sleep. Why? Because I had a lot of shit running through my mind dealing with this guy and dealing with what I just been told, trying to piece it all together. And like I said, I'm gonna have to write him up in eval, and how do I even begin? So I, I didn't see him at all on Monday, not at all, in the whole twenty-four hours. And on Tuesday. I didn't see him at all until about 7 o'clock at night when I was down in my space again working. And he came back down to see me on Tuesday. Now, here's where everything gets thrown out the window. So on Tuesday, 
and come down So, hey, you remember the conversation we had the other night? And I go, yeah, that's all I've been thinking about. And he goes, well, my friends, they came and got me. And I'm like, oh, well, that's nice. Where'd you go? So how much of your house in Kankakee? Now, we're on the other side of the world at this time. You know, we're near Korea, Japan, Singapore, somewhere in that time frame. All right. More than 24 hours away. All right. By, by, by jet. Okay. And those are my friends. They came and got me. Oh, oh that's nice. Where'd you go? Well, I went to your house. Well, it's only seven o'clock at night. Ain't no fucking way he could have gone to my house and be back by now. No way. Okay. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. What'd you see? And then when he starts describing the things that he saw, I started getting upset. And the more he described, the more upset I was getting. And the reason being was, if he just got back 15 minutes ago, the things he's talking about wasn't what you would have experienced had you gone to my house that day. All right? Because I asked him to describe the things he was describing. You know, what his experience was when he got to my house. First thing he described was a 1966 Ford Galaxy 500. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that, except this is in May of 1982. We traded the Galaxy 500 in 1970 for a Plymouth 33. And in 1973, my dad traded that in for, in other words, he's talking four or five cars ago. That's not the car that's out in front of my house today. And he had the details. He had the details so perfect in the car. All right. And that was the first thing. And then the second thing was, he started describing our kitchen. The way it looked before it got remodeled in 1968. Yeah, he just got back 15 minutes ago. And I knew everything he told me was a God bonus truth. All right? And I knew that he was describing the kitchen from 1967. All right? See, I'm not thinking time travel. But he did. He traveled back in time. He described furniture that we sold at a yard sale in 1970. He described things that we'd written on our wall in our bedroom, all right? Our parents gave us these um, Dago markers, and we got to mark the walls when we were kids, all right? Well, we covered all that up with wood paneling in 1970. Yet, he's describing everything under the wood paneling. And he just got back from my house, and you go in my, in my bedroom, you would have seen the wood paneling. You wouldn't have seen any of the stuff written on the walls. Yeah, that's what he's describing. Just coming back 15 minutes ago. You know, so the answer he was giving me brought up a lot of questions. Because I'm trying to figure out how he got all this information. How did he know it? How could he know it? Why would he even bring it up? Did you come to any conclusions in your own mind? Like, how did he get... Did... Was he a spook? 
did he like do some background on you? He worked in the ship's office. And they're the ones who had my records. All right. So he had my records. All right. But I know I didn't have any pictures of any of this. I certainly wasn't talking about stuff so far, ancient history. And that's where I looked at it. And it had no bearing on what was going on in the bay. Okay. All right. You know, our lives have changed a little bit. You know, uh, you know, our family had matured and all of that. And, you know, I just couldn't believe that he was bringing all of this stuff up from so far in the past. Yet every detail he gave me was absolutely true. And I knew it. And I was trying to figure out how he knew it. I thought maybe the CIA gave him pictures or something. I had no idea. Well, I didn't. I didn't know what to think. I just know that it was. I had to believe it because I heard it. Okay, but this is what he's describing that he saw in the in the hour that he was gone. You know, the very same day. And I was trying to figure out how, because like I said, I wasn't thinking time travel. Of course, ET has it. You and I don't. And in 1982. You know, you know, we know time travel is a wide thing. So finally, I'm I'm getting more and more upset. And the more I'm asking him, the less he's telling me. So I finally told him, I said, okay, look, motherfucker. What you're telling me is the truth. I want to meet your little green friend. Got it? I want to meet your little green friend. And he goes, Kevin, it's not up to me. It's totally up to them. He goes, I'll tell them. And if they, they want to, then they will. All right? If they want you to meet them, then they'll let you meet them. He goes, if they don't, you will never know about it. Period. But it's totally up to them. And I looked him right in the eye, and I got real close to him, and I poked him in the chest, and I said, make it fucking happen. That's exactly the way that conversation ended. And he says, well, I'll talk to him. I can't promise you anything. And he goes, and I'll let you know. And I said, you do it. I said, make it happen. Okay, so now I'm starting to believe that he's got his terrestrial friends. Wait, sorry. That one didn't come out clear. Can now, you say that? Now I am starting to believe he does have actual extraterrestrial friends. Okay? Got it. And at that point, I decided I wanted to meet him. What he's telling me is true. I want to meet him. All right. So now I would too. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the way this whole thing went down. Now this is on Tuesday. Okay. Now I didn't see him at all on Wednesday. And Thursday night, I'm standing in line at Chow Hall at around five fifteen right after it opened, and I'm at the front of the line. Being being the corpsman, I got head of the line privileges because I'm always on call. So I would get in and out as soon as I could just in case an emergency came up. And so I was at the head of the line. And he walks back in at the end of the line, maybe about 30 people behind, you know, 30, 35 people behind me at the end of the line. And he sees me and he starts yelling, Cameron, 
Cameron! And I look over at him, and he's got this Cheshire cat grin on his face, and gives me two thumbs up, and he says, you're there, man, you're there. <laughs> and, and a couple of guys at the front of the child line standing next to me are like, where, Cameron? Where are you at? I go, I'm right here, getting ready to eat. Yeah, just like you. Right? I didn't know what to say. I certainly wasn't going to say, I'm there, I'm going to meet E.T. Right? So, you understand what I mean? So, I, I blew that off real quick. And he gave me two big thumbs up. So, then I, I went in, I sat down, and I waited for him, and he came over and he sat down there. And he goes, yeah. He goes, you can meet him. I go, well, that's good. When? I don't know. Where? I don't know. What? He's not telling me nothing. Huh? I got nothing to tell you. What do you mean? You just told me I can meet him. Well, me, I'm trying to, I'm doing things the way us humans do it. Trying to think of a time, place, you know. Well, you know, meal, whatever. You know, like we normally do when we meet people. Now, now this is on Thursday night. All right, so then the next day is Friday. Um, I just got done eating, and it's roughly right around 11.30 in the morning. All right? It wasn't straight up noon, but it was close to being straight up noon. And I'm down in my compartment. And he and I lived in the same compartment. Uh, we shared the same compartment. So, you know, and that's another way we knew each other all these years because we lived in the same compartment on the ship. Um, anyway, he comes down in the compartment and he goes, they're here. I go, oh, really? Where? I don't see him. Because you got to go up on the main deck. Yeah, okay. So I have to go upstairs one level to get out onto the main deck. And the main deck is what's open out to the ocean. And so I walked out. Uh, we have this thing called a wind tunnel. And I walked so far along that, and then I'm out on the main deck. And... I see it because it's only, um, all right, now I'm trying to draw a picture in your mind, all right, on the way this was. Imagine a circle with zero being straight dead in center in front of you. Got it? Got it. Yes. All right. And in the military, we go by angles. So you got 90, 180. 270, and then zero again. All right, so I just divided the ship off in a 90-degree angle. Got it? Got it. This craft was at approximately angle 210 to 230 degrees. So it would be just like around the 8 o'clock position. Got it. On the clock. All right. Roughly seven to eight miles away, and this object was roughly seven to eight miles in the air. 
and this object was an eight-pointed star, shimmering and shining like every color of the rainbow. The most gorgeous thing I've ever seen in my life. And, and it was approximately three to three and a half miles wide to two, two and a half miles tall. The top half of, of the top spire was roughly one and a half to one and three quarters mile tall. And the bottom spire was only roughly three quarters of a mile to a mile long. In other words, the shorter spire at the bottom was not as long as the one at the top. But the one from the left to the right were the same equal distance. And it was an eight-pointed star. And my first thought was the star of Bethlehem. Interesting. Have you ever tried to draw the object? I'm not an artist. Have you ever talked to an artist to try to get a, an artist rendering? Yes, and I haven't been able to find one that will do it. Pretty pathetic, but that's the truth. So then, I see this object, and it's huge. I mean, beyond huge. And it's absolutely gorgeous. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's shimmering, and it's not making a sound. And it's perfectly still. Well, there's two guys that are having a conversation right in front of me. One is standing to my right and the other one is standing in front of me. And I grabbed the guy on my right by the shoulders and I got a death grip on him and I'm shaking the living fuck out of him. I mean, I am vigorously shaking him and yelling his name, trying to get his attention because I want him to see this object. Nothing else I wanted to witness. No response. Not a response. And the guy that's talking to him, who's basically looking right at me, he doesn't say anything to him like, hey, Doc's trying to get your attention or anything. He just keeps talking to him like, I'm not there. Weird. Okay. Uh, where was Jeff at this time? He was down in the he was down in the uh, compartment. He didn't come upstairs with me. Do you know why he didn't come up? Uh, not at the time because I'm like, what the fuck? I, I you know it's there, and, and at this time I'd already changed my mind. I did not want to meet them no more. Just seeing their craft was enough for me. Okay. Now, as far as I was concerned, I was done and over with it. Yeah. Splice. Blink. Now, all of a sudden, I'm on their ship, looking down and watching my ship sail away. But before you get to that point, and when you're interacting with these two, these two uh, friends of yours, or people that were on, on, the, on the ship, what, what is going through your mind, like? You're trying to get a, trying to get some some reaction from them, and they're just like you're not even there. What was going through your mind at that time? Well, my mind was still trying to get their attention. All right, I'm I'm just trying to figure out why they're not answering me. But 
this all happened so quick, and it was like blink, and now I'm on the, their craft, all right? And I'm watching my ship sail away. And I'm no longer on my ship, not with my present thoughts and all of that. I'm definitely on their ship. Yeah, and it was in a microsecond. I mean, it's just like I'm talking to you, and in the middle of a sentence, I finish it up in another room without missing a beat. I mean, it was that fast. And I looked around, and I seen that I was on their craft. And and I noticed that when I looked out towards the edge of the wall, I could see through it. Uh, so no matter wherever I looked, I was looking outside. Yet it was all solid on the inside. That's one thing I noticed. I saw my ship falling away. And my first thought was, my God, this can't be happening. And as soon as I thought that, a voice came in my head and said, yes, it is. It's what you wanted. Well, to be honest with you, it's not exactly what I want. You know? I mean, this isn't what I want. It's not, put it this way, it's not what I expected. Okay? And so... And and then my second thought was, my God, I'm AWOL. Because that was the first time in eight years in the Navy that I was not at my assigned position at the time I was supposed to be. First time ever. And this is a reassuring thought. Think about this. Another voice came in my head and said, but they don't even know you're gone. Now, isn't that nice and reassuring? They don't even know I'm gone on my ship. I know I'm gone. I'm not on my ship. I'm not sure where I'm at. Oh, I, mean, I knew I was on the crap. But, you know, it's like, what's going to happen next? Now, I don't remember what my third thought was, but a third voice came in my head. And then they started answering my question. And none of them spoke out of turn. And it sounded like, you know, it sounded like a, um, unanimated voice. You know, like a computer voice. You know, speaking in a monotone. You know, no, no real expression one way or the other. You know, and the things they were saying. You know, I mean, you know, they could be talking about how nice the weather is. And then about the mass murder that happened. And there was no emotion between the two. If you understand what I mean by that. And so they started answering my question. Well, now at the same time, we kind of came in down alongside the side of my ship. And we sailed right down the side of my ship out there in the ocean. And this is probably approximately three to five seconds now that after I've been on board. And they've already answered the first question. And we get to the point on my ship where I was jumping up and down and pointing at their ship. And there I am, jumping up and down, pointing at their ship. And now I'm in two places at once. That's a thought going through my mind. How the fuck can I be in two places at once? Yet, there I've seen it. 
that was a mind-blowing experience. I certainly wasn't expecting to see me on the ship, especially since I was on their ship. So then we went out, out past the ship, and I'm watching it sail back behind us, and all of a sudden, blink. And now we're over an intersection. All right. And it's, oh, it's probably right around noon. And I'm looking down on top of these buildings. And I'm not familiar with them because I'm not, you know, I've. Turns out it was a major intersection in town. It took me a few seconds to realize where I was at. Because I had been, I've been through that intersection lots of times, but I've never seen the tops of the buildings, the roofs. I've always been down at ground level, looking at it from a different perspective. So it took me a couple of seconds to orient where I was at. And I figured that we were at around the a fifth floor of the bank building where my dad worked at. Now I looked over at the bank building where my dad worked at. And this is not even 10 seconds. Not even 10 seconds ago, I was on my ship. Now I'm down in Kankakee. Okay? I known at that second, when I realized where I was at and what time it was, I knew that I had time traveled. That I didn't know. Because I know that it was right around noon where I was at, which meant it was around midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, back home in Kankakee. Yet I was there live, you know, like right around noon. So I knew that I had to go into the past or I had to go into the future. I didn't know which way it was, but I had known right then and there, I had just time traveled. And this is like in the first 15 seconds being a Okay, I look over at the bank building, and not only can I see it, I can see through it. I can see the marble. I can see through the marble. This is the outside structure of the bank. I can see the steel I-frames. I can see the concrete. I can see the wires. And I can see all the way through it. And I was able to do this through every single room on the floor that I was looking, all the way back to my dad's office. My dad was sitting behind the desk. A man comes in. My dad stands up. They shake hands. They both sit down. Blink. Now I'm gone over Grace Baptist Academy. And so this whole scenario lasted about 10 to 15 seconds at the bank. And number one, I didn't ask to go and see my dad. And number two, I was surprised they knew where my dad worked. I was wondering how much information they had about my mom and dad. If they had that much about me, that they knew where to take me. And this wasn't pre-thought or any of that. This is what they were giving to me at the time. And I remember, I remember looking over at the wall and seeing the water pipes running through the wall that went to the um, water fountain. And I could see the water running through the pipes. I could see the electrical conduits. 
in the walls and through them, both at the same time. You know, I mean, that's hard to fathom. How can you see something and see through it, both at the same time? Yet both just as realistic and, you know, abject as uh, positive. You know, it's like, I wasn't expecting that. And then we get over to where my mom taught. She taught at a Grace Christian Baptist um, Church Academy Christian School. And her class is on the first floor. And I remember looking through the roof, and I was looking into the second floor classroom. And all the students were sitting at their desk in, on the second floor classroom, and I could see their desk. And I could see through their desk. And I remember thinking I could be the desk police. Uh, I could walk around and just point to a desk. You need to clean that out. You know, or Mary Jane, your desk looks perfect without even looking at it. You know, just looking through it. You know, I was thinking like like a super cop or something, you know, superpowers. You know, man, I'm not expecting none of this. Because uh, I don't have that. I don't have that ability. Yeah, I'm, I'm normal like you. One other one other thing that is really interesting to me is that you're you're seeing it. Well, the way you're describing it is that you're seeing it as if you were only a few feet away from the building, but this ship is a massive three mile by two and a half mile ship. So how could you get that close? To this building and to be able to see into all these little little nooks and crannies of that building. Delusional illusion. Uh, no, the reason I say that is just because it appeared to be as big as it was, was it really? I mean, it won't, we weren't dragging in the water when we went down the side of my ship. And, my, and the water line is about 30 feet above the, the surface of the water, right? So I knew that what I was in was not as big as what it appeared to be. Got it. That's why I say that. And I'll get into more detail about that later on in our discussion. Uh, see, so... Yes, it was like I, I could reach out and touch the desk. You know, we were right above it. But you now, and I and I know that, you know, there's no way I would have even been able to see it from being two miles away from it. You know, so well, I, I'm. I, but I'm just explaining to you exactly the way this went down, All right? And and I was right there on top of all of that. So I knew then that. What what I'd seen was not what I was experiencing. Right. So, and like you said, you know, when you were, when you first passed by the ship and you saw yourself and you were in two places at one time, it's like your reality was being manipulated. You know, you were, you were, you, your consciousness was being shown things that it, it's hard to comprehend. 
because you've never experienced these things before. Well, exactly. Right? Exactly. You know, and, and the things that I've said, they're kind of hard to believe. You know? I mean, the reality is that's what I experienced, and this was the way my situation went down. And, and then, so then, after that, it's cold, it's dark, it's gray. I see a bunch of craters everywhere. And I'm thinking that we're out in some desert somewhere in a bombing range. And I, I was familiar with being around them, being in the military. So I've fallen over a few. And they look like the surface of the moon. Bomb craters everywhere, you know. And they look like the craters on the moon. And so we're, we're going along. And I'm trying to figure out what bombing range we're over. And then we came up to a ridge of mountains and we went up over the top of the mountain. And there's earth laid out in front of us. You know, about the size of a tennis ball. And that's when I squeezed my asshole as tight as I could, reached over with my left hand and pinched the back of my right hand until it bled. I made sure I got it to bleed. So I would have that scar. That's that's when I did that. And I hadn't been with these bastards 30 seconds yet. They took me to the dark side of the moon. Pink Floyd thing about it. I got to experience it. And I wasn't expecting it. I didn't ask them to take me there. Now, in every one of these situations, there was never, never one moment where I felt that I was moving. It's not like I'm sitting in a car and you can feel when you're traveling. It wasn't like that. It was like, blink, now I'm here. Blink, now I'm there. Blink, now I'm here. And that's when I kind of like didn't know what to expect next. I really didn't. As you can tell, this thing is just getting started. Were you, were you continuing to ask them questions? Or was this no. stuff happening too fast for you to even yes. comprehend what was really happening? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was while I was trying to comprehend everything that was going on. I wasn't thinking about asking them questions. I was trying to figure it out for myself. You know, place myself back in reality. And what, what, what you got to understand is, see, I'd already entered into a different dimension once they beamed me aboard their ship. That one's a little bit hard for me to grasp because I don't really understand outside of the four dimensions. The, the three dimensions in our world and time is the fourth dimension. So if you're in another dimension of... I'm just, I'm struggling, wrapping zone. my head around that one. I'm Sorry. now in the twilight. I'm now in the twilight zone. Okay, got it. Okay, and 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 look, the the everything that you and I know, as far as our four dimensions and reality and all that, throw it out the window when it comes to that. When I'm inside there, all right. Um, I asked them where they were from. 
instantly. I'm standing in a 3D star chart of the universe. And off to my right is our solar system. Uh, and it looks just like our solar system that you grew up with in high school. You know, with all the different planets and stuff. Only there's no gears attached to any of them. They're all free form. They're all moving. And their, their solar system took up about eight to ten feet of space off to my right. But they deliberately set me up to the left of it so I'd know exactly where I was in relation to our solar system. And then the room I'm in expanded. Just grew outward five, six, seven hundred feet, eight hundred feet. I have no idea. In every direction around me. And all of this is filled in with space, with planets and galaxies and all of that. And they said, you see the red light at the far end? And I would say it was roughly at the far end away from where I was at, roughly eight or 900 feet away. Okay, and like I said, our solar system only took up about eight feet of space. So there's a lot of space between our solar system and where they are from. Mm -hmm. And they told me the name of their planet, but I couldn't begin to pronounce it. It sounds something like, yeah, it sounds like some kind of noise a bug would make. All right? Seriously. I mean, your guess is as good as mine as to what it actually is. But they said they were roughly... um, Six light years away from us, and that they can travel to our planet from theirs in three and a half months. Really, so it actually takes them. It takes them time. They don't blink from their system to ours. Oh, we're talking six light years. Okay, I have a question about the uh, the things that you were seeing. Did it ever occur to you that maybe these, maybe that the, the the inside of this craft was not actually moving to different locations, but you were being shown like a holographic image? Well, that, I'm getting ready to get to that. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so, so right after I asked them where they were from, and they showed me, they start showing me things. Show me things of the future. Show me things of the past. And some of the things of the present. And here's exactly what they told me. Some of what you see has already been. Some of what you see has yet to be. Destiny will be fulfilled. And they showed me about, oh, I don't know, somewhere around 30 minutes worth of different interesting things. It is not a happy day at Disneyland. Everything they were showing me was death and destruction on a major scale. Like, for instance, um, a volcano. Well, not just like Mount St. Helens. 
We're talking more like Yellowstone Caldera. You know, not just a major volcano, a major volcano. Got it. Um, I, I got to see parts of a war. Now, I couldn't tell you what war. I couldn't tell you where or when. But I've seen a lot of shit getting blown up and a lot of people getting killed. Um, earthquakes. I remember we're over, we were like farmland. And we're out in, the, out in the country out there. And, you know, I'm up about five or six miles high looking out over the land. And you can see, what, 50, 60, 150 miles? You know, it's like looking out over an airplane. How far can you see on a clear day? Um, a big, large distance. And I'm sitting there, and it looks like a beautiful day out, and all of a sudden, the ground starts crumbling right in front of me. And then it starts dropping. Except, except to the right, it starts rising. So the ground in front of me is crumbling and dropping down into nothing. But the ground to the right you know, I don't know, maybe a mile, two miles off to the right, it's rising up. And it's rising up tall, very tall, two, three, four hundred feet. And then everything that crumbled in front of me, wow, water gushes in. They got a new west coast, just like that. And I'm trying to think of how many people just died in that scenario just quickly died, you know? And I don't know if this is in California or where it was at, you know? And let's see. I, I've forgotten a lot of them over the years. You know, you know, I try not to think about, I try not to think about traumatic events, all right? So I've kind of like forgotten some of them. But, Every one of them was a calamity, a major calamity. And you saw uh, roughly about 30 minutes of this, almost yeah. like a movie, yeah. watching a movie of, of these things happening. Yes, and they were all holograms. I felt like I was there witnessing it live as it occurred. And that's what I felt was going on. All right? But And it would repeat about every three to four minutes. It would repeat... Some of what you see has already been. Some of what you see has yet to be. Destiny will be fulfilled. Wow. The very last thing. Um, well, this, this is important. The very last thing that I saw during all of this was me writing a Harley Davidson motorcycle, getting hit broadside by a car, and laying on the ground next to it, not moving. And I thought I'd seen how I died. And so for 21 years, I felt that I knew how I was going to die. And that was in a motorcycle accident, riding a Harley Davidson. All right, but see, it wasn't going to be just a special. It was going to be a 100th anniversary Harley Davidson, a 2003 Harley Davidson Sportster. 
Okay? That's what I was writing. So, that, that was the very last thing they showed me, was me being hit and killed on a motorcycle. Ah, man, I mean, you know, all the other stuff, you can you can look at that and be a little bit of objective about it, not really concern yourself too much, but you see yourself dying or being laid out, splayed out on the sidewalk or the pavement from getting hit by a, a car while you ride a motorcycle. That's, that's hits home pretty close. Surprise! Yeah. I'm not expecting this. Thanks, E.T. And that was the last thing. And then, then my normal vision came back, and I was inside their craft again. So, um, and I have a couple of questions about that that movie experience. I don't know if that's what you want to call it, but uh, are you done? Are you done with that that part of the experience? Because so I can kind of drill down on that a little bit. Yeah, that that like I said, I can't remember a lot of them. All right, I, I told you about seeing wars. Um, you know, the the volcano and everything that I'm seeing is 15, 20, 25, 30 seconds long. Just enough for me to realize what I'm looking at and now I'm looking at something different. All right. And I'm trying to deal trying to deal with what I just saw as far as the calamity that's involved. Right. You know? Right. Were the scenes repeating themselves or was it a new scene every it was a new scene. Okay. As you, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if it was live or a hologram. To me, it experienced. I experienced it. I thought it was live at the time. Were your other senses detecting anything? Like, were you smelling anything, or could you taste? Like, you know, if you're near a a, no. a, a fire, you can smell smoke, and you can no. taste. Okay. Could you hear anything? No. Okay. So the whole experience was visual. Yes. Okay. Did you remember having any thoughts? No. Because it was one calamity after another. Okay. And just, you know, and they all got better. I mean, what I mean by better was more grand. You know, more, was, more what? More grand. Oh, I like see. the okay. volcano was towards the end. It wasn't at the beginning. Got it. Okay. All right. It Started was, out small and built up, built up to a crescendo. Yeah. And then, yeah. you, you know, it ended in you meeting yeah. your demise. Exactly. I don't blame you for never wanting to ride a motorcycle again after that, man. And then, you know, I didn't want, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect from all this. I'm not, this isn't what I expected. This isn't my way of meeting E.T. Right. Okay, this isn't what I had in mind. Got it. So I'm totally under their control. Uh, so so basically, you're given a a visual record of the history of calamities, starting and stopping at a point in time that you don't know anything about, really. Right. I don't know when any of them were. I don't know how far in the past, how far in the future. 
I didn't sit there and try to accept, oh, this already happened. I didn't try to do any of that. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just experiencing the experience and responding to it at the moment. Right. It seems to me that these ET are kind of dense about what we can comprehend because you give us that information and don't tell us when it's going to happen. What good does it do? Right? The, the ETs. Yeah. The, if the ETs yeah. are giving you all this information and not telling you when it's going to happen, what's the no, point? No, they're showing me things that are going to happen. But they're not saying when or, or you know, how to prevent it or anything like that. They're just showing you this is, this is going to happen uh, and, and some of it has already happened and destiny will be fulfilled. So what, what's yeah. the What's the point? Did, did you ever ask that question? No. Okay. No, and you know why? No. It wouldn't do me any good if I knew. Well, not the... Not the uh, so the, the, the question that I would want to know, not, not so much when is all this stuff going to happen because it's too much information, but why... Are you showing me this stuff? I've asked myself that millions of times. Yeah. I've tried to analyze it millions of times. Yeah. You know what conclusions I've come up with? I have no answers. <clears throat> and see, that's the thing. Why? That's what I'm saying. That's why I think ET doesn't understand humans. If they're if they're going to show us this information without any context. They obviously don't get how humans work. Do you, do you follow me? Yeah. Well, you know, I look. I, I'm sorry, I can't answer for ET because I've asked myself the very same question. You know, it doesn't make sense. However, you know, and the last thing I didn't need to see myself get murdered. Exactly. Yes. Why? Why show you that? So again, I'm not being critical of you. The experience you had, it's an amazing experience. Uh, I just question what the motivation was. I question the motivation of the ETs and why they were showing you these things without any context. That's it. That's all. I guess I, I, guess I sh could put it this way. I'm empathizing with you because I did put myself in your in your shoes while I was hearing you retell that, that experience. And yeah. I was visualizing everything that you were telling me. So it was, it was kind of like I was there, but I, you know, I know it was probably way yeah. more. I, I, and that's, and that's, that's all intention of my story. I'm trying to put the reader into my shoes. Got it. I want you to experience what I was experiencing while I was experiencing it. And I was. Right. I'm, I'm a visual person, and I, I feel like I was experiencing that, you know, right out of... And I don't know why. All right? But at the end of the 30-minute uh, thing, when my normal vision came back and stuff, I started asking them questions. Okay. I was asking them all kinds of questions. All right? Like, for instance, do you eat? Oh, yes, yeah, so but we don't eat the same way you do. 
basically they take their food in through osmosis. That's the way I determine what they were saying. They absorb it through their skin. I guess because of your medical background, that would have been a, a logical question. But to me, <laughs> I don't think I would have asked them why, what they, or you know, if they can eat. But that's a that's a logical question for somebody in the medical well, field, I think. I asked them if they were going to eat me. Good question. Okay, I did ask them that. Good question, and and obviously their answer was no. But did they laugh at you? Yeah, actually they did. They kind of said, oh, you watch too many horror movies. <laughs> see, here's the thing. I never watched that many horror movies. I worked as a paramedic. I've seen enough horror in real life. I didn't need to go to the movies to see any. You know, working on the Emily screw and stuff, I've seen a lot of gross and disgusting things. Now, I described some of them to you earlier. You know? And so... I, I never really went and watched horror movies. So I kind of thought that was kind of dumb. Also, I'm glad that I had the experiences that I did because it helped me to cope with this experience a lot better. All right? Seeing all the traumatic things that were going on and stuff, a lot of people would freak out. And I just kind of like, oh, what's next? You know? Because... I, I had seen enough gross and disgusting things. I wasn't surprised at the things I was being shown. I didn't like it all, but that's beside the point. Did have have you seen? Is there anything that you saw during that hologram that you have realized has come to pass? No. Interesting. No. Of all the things that I've seen. I haven't seen anything that resembled anything that I saw or any references to any major calamities that would be associated with what I saw. And trust me, I'm watching every day. I understand. So you're asking them questions, they're answering your questions, and which is pretty cool, actually, the fact that they're, they're taking your questions and giving you answers to it. Oh, and they're speaking in English. And they speak, here's what they told me. They speak every single language on this planet fluently, including languages that have been dead for thousands of years. Every single one. Now, okay. were, were they speaking out of their mouth or was it like projected into your brain? Mental, mental telepathy. Okay, gotcha. Okay. And they all took turns answering the questions. They didn't speak out of turn. They didn't, one of them didn't go and answer two questions in a row. It was your turn, your turn, your turn, your turn, your turn, your turn to answer my questions. Got it. Right? Was So was there three of them or more? Well, I ascertained by the three voices that it was only three. Oh, so you could not see them? Oh, I hadn't seen them yet. No. I see. Okay, gotcha. Okay. No, you notice I haven't described them or anything yet? We're not at that point in my story. Trying not to presume anything. I just, you know, I just ask questions as they come up. Okay? Yeah. We're, we're not at that point in my story yet. Now, I've been rough. Now, at this time, I've been rough 
with them roughly about a half an hour, 35 minutes. All right. And then I got around to what they looked like. Well, I told my friend, I want to meet your little green friend. So I asked him, I said, what do you look like? And the first response was, we're not little and we're not green. I couldn't think of a bigger understatement to anything in my life. I was standing in in the room, and I had my back against the wall. And they said, um, go to the left, and you come to the hallway. I walked down to the end of the hallway and walked up into the room at the end of the hallway. And so I, I made my way to the left. And the hallway was about maybe 20 feet wide, about 25 to 30 feet tall, and about 75 to 80 feet long. And so I started walking down the hallway. And I got about maybe 10 or 15 feet, and I noticed there was a room to my left with an open doorway. So I went over there. And I stood in the doorway, and I looked inside the room. And I'm seeing all this old equipment. I would say old because it looked like it was old-fashioned to me. It looked something more like a 30 or 40s sci-fi thing. There was a long, long table with a console on the back of it that had uh, maybe two or three rows of lights, about six or eight lights each. Toggle switches and what I call oven dials. The, the kind of oven dial that sticks up off the stove. Like if you have a gas range, you put your hand down on it and you turn that, you know, the knob. Yeah. You know, like I call them oven dials. I don't know what else to call them. Raised area in the middle, you know, you put your hand over it, and they're big, big and round. And so uh, there's probably um, uh, maybe about six or eight of those and a couple of uh, cathode ray tubes, like radar screens. And they looked about the size of a radar screen. I don't know, you know, how big a radar screen is. Roughly like 12, 14 inches across. Yeah, anywhere, yeah, anywhere from that to about 22 inches. Got it. All right, so. Hey, you know, again, a, a suggestion, if you ever have an opportunity, an artist rendering of, of this would be spectacular. Well, I, I got some rough drawn picture. I'm sorry? I got some rough drawn pictures. Okay. That I drew, but they're not they're not detailed, and they're not exact. They're a replica of what I see. All right, the way I remember it. But anyway, this old room, you know, and but on the console, on the the console, and the console was about as wide as the room, about thirty feet wide, with this up in the back. And there really wasn't a lot on the console, but there was a couple of places that had recessed 
areas that look like a person's skin could fit in there. And I noticed there was like three of them on there. Now, while I'm standing there looking in the room, one of the um, entities walked out from the other end of the hallway. And I could tell by looking at him, he was a lot bigger than me. And as he got closer, the closer he got, the more I realized this isn't looking human. This looked like a praying mantis. Insectoid. And when he got close enough, he was about 12 to 15 feet tall. Now, it's really hard for me to describe uh, 12 to 15 feet. You're talking three feet. That's a major amount of space. Well, yeah, but we're looking at an entity whose head is one-third the size of its body. Mm. In other words, the head is roughly five, five-and-a-half feet. Just the head. Got it. All right. Now, great big black is coal eyes, triangular shaped, eggshell white, the whole rest of the body. No signs of any clothing. They look like they were totally naked. They had no nipples. They had no midline. They had no organs or a penis or a vagina or an asshole. Totally smooth. Did they have the body of a, uh, like a, a, a carapace, you know, an exoskeleton? Or they were like it... a praying mantis. So their their body was shaped like a praying mantis body? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. The head was a praying mantis head. And like I said, it was one-third the size of their body. All right. And their, their, their body was skinny and thin, right? Long legs, long arms. They did, they, had, did they have more than two arms and two legs? No. Okay. And they did have... Uh, each hand had two fingers and a thumb. That's the way I'll describe it. Okay. Are, are you feeling any fear? Oh, trepidation. Okay. Well, oh, I mean, uh, what do I expect? You know, is it going to reach out with one hand and grab me? I, I have no idea. So I continued on down the end of the road. And I went up the steps. There's about six or seven steps. And I walked into a door. And when I went in to my left of me, I could see this, like, computer room with all of these computers and great big machines and all kinds of other stuff going off and working off to the left. In front of me was a table, kind of like a U-shaped table. All right, and I had a couple of little machines on it, you know, little pieces of gear. You know, I, I want to say, uh, reminded me of um, 
as good as you'd have with a sound system, all right? Components about that size. Now, I don't know what they were. I don't know if they were a computer or what. But there was three chairs lined up at this table. And there was uh, the two other remaining ETs were in their chairs. Now, these chairs were form-fitted. They were made specifically for these individuals. And I guess that's what they live in uh, when they're not out running around stuff. I guess they get back into these chairs and they get recharged. Uh, they get their meals, things like that. See. Got it. So. That's probably um, their, their rest area where they regenerate. Yeah, well, that's or where they work out of. Okay. I, I really don't know. All right. Um, <clears throat> that's not the way we live our life. But. Um, the, the one I saw was smaller than the, than the other one. The main one was in the middle. And he was roughly three feet taller than the other two. His chair sat higher. He sat up higher. He looked bigger. All right? And the thing about him was I could see his brain. Mm. That's right weird. there was the brain cavity is, it was like he had an amniotic sac covering it. And I could see his brain. And his brain looked exactly like yours or mine, only about 25 to 30 times bigger. And so I'm, I'm observing this. And I'm fascinated. Because I'd be in a corpsman, I want to know as much about the human body as possible. And here I was, getting to experience, watching, watching a brain like ours in activity. I could see little lights flickering over here, lighting up a little bit, and then other places, and it lights would go on and off. It'd be like little clusters of light, like miniature small cities on a model train layout. Uh, I was fascinated with it. I could see the blood flowing through the brain. And I remember thinking, gee, if I had a needle, I could stick a hole in this. All that fluid would leak out. Well, what happened to this? I remember thinking that at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm not expecting this. And I'm certainly not expecting a brain that looks like yours or mine. Yeah. And I mean, it was exactly like yours or mine. Only, like I said, being a much bigger scale size head, a much bigger brain. And I thought, man, there isn't a neurosurgeon on the face of the earth that wouldn't give their left arm to share my experience with me right now. Because I knew what I was seeing. Yeah, the, but, only, way, the only way to see a, an active brain is to open up the cranium or to do an MRI. Right. That's right. Yeah. And this was still in the amniotic sac. So it was still white, as white as can be. Because your brain is white until it's exposed to the air. You hear me? Yes, makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I got to enjoy that for about five minutes. And they're still answering questions. And I can't remember what all the questions were because a lot of the questions brought up more questions. The answers they give me was, what? Well, how, how is that possible? Wow. You know? And they, they, were talk, they were talking to me about stuff that was over my head. You got to realize this conversation was going on in 1982. And they're talking about basically interdimensional, extra-dimensional, the stuff that they're talking about nowadays. And you were, mm-hmm. you were in your mid-20s at this time? I was 28. 28, yeah. So 27. You didn't, 27 or 28. You didn't have a lot of, other than your experience as a as an ambulance technician or, or whatever that was um, you had not been on earth a, that long so you didn't have like the the knowledge you have accumulated to this day versus what you had accumulated up to your 28 is a vast difference uh, in the amount of knowledge and experience that you've acquired Oh yeah. So you, you, you you're a young just kid basically. I was just I was getting broke into the ET phenomenon. Yeah. Just getting broke into it. I I researched the subject for the last since 1985. Mm-hmm. All right. And I've done a lot of research. All right. And and the UFO phenomenon continues you know, it, it, there's a lot of complications to it. And there's a lot of subdivisions to it. And there's a lot of little sub-rivers and creeks and streams all in there. And it's all interconnected and it's all tied together. Now, they told me the crash at Roswell happened in 1947. All right? It was not their species. And they use the word species, not me. That was involved. But they are aware of the species that was involved. And that they were aware of them and four other species. Four other species working together with our government and all the major governments of the world. Building together of the new world order they told me this in 1982 when i asked about god oh i might as well have hit him in the balls and strike him because that's the only time they were not you know sounding like a computer voice speaking in a monotone boy they spoke with a lot of authority a lot of hate and a lot of discernment and they were very totally adamant about not speaking about God. That's very strange. Yes. Well, you know, that tells me. Because when I asked, is God real? They never told me he was not real. They never told me he did not exist. They never told me that. They did not acknowledge the fact that he existed. But they told me they were forbidden to discuss the subject. Hmm, that's interesting. Now, 
God never forbid us from speaking about God. It says in the Bible, praise God. Proclaim glory to God. You know, something that we should do on a daily basis. So that told me two things. One, God is real. Very real. And if God is real, then the Bible is real. And if the Bible is real, Jesus is real. Um, number two, they were not on the side of God. That told me that right then and there. And that answers a lot of questions that weren't even asked. And it makes me wonder, how does the UFO phenomenon tie into the Bible? Yeah, I'm seeing through my experience that it does. Response? I don't have a response. That's a uh, that's a pretty profound statement and mind blowing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Did they do besides that reaction, that visceral, almost fearful reaction they had to hearing the word God? Did they do anything that was threatening? Not then. So. Uh, and this, look, I wasn't expecting that response. Got it. Not at all. And I certainly wasn't expecting to hear the things that I heard. And I wasn't happy with what they were saying. But when they told me they were working on the New World Order, I knew that that was the one world government that they talk about in the book of Revelation that's going to be coming about on the face of the earth. And that Satan is going to be in control of that. And that's why I feel that they were on the side of Satan. Now, could I be wrong? Could they have been working on the side of God towards the New World Order in order to help make it happen? Yes, that's quite possible. But that's not the way I interpret it. Not for no reaction about God. They were so negative. Uh, it bothered me. I understand. And you being there and being a first-hand witness of that reaction, your intuition is probably closer to accurate than what anybody listening to this is is going to think. Right, right. I agree. So continue. Well, continue. So, oh, uh, and I can't remember what all the subjects were that we talked about. But we talked about quite a bit. I got quite the education from them. I learned a lot. All right, so now we're all done. All right, I'm done looking at him in the office. You know, I'm looking at the guy's brain. And he he, he, he laid his chair back and reclined so that I could get a good look. And I could walk all the way around it and see and observe. And he was letting me do that. And then after about five minutes, um, the other one came back into the room. And all three of them got up and stood around me. And they asked me if I ever wanted to come back and be with them again. And I flat out said, fuck, no, <laughs> never. All right. And 
Lauren put their hand on my shoulder, and then I sat up in my bed, and I was fighting, swinging my arms, swinging, fighting. I was totally exhausted. I had been drained. Every ounce of my sweat and my body had soaked through my shirt, my T-shirt, my pants, my underwear. I was dripping in sweat. My clothes were. And I was totally exhausted because I had felt like I was fighting them off. All right. And the next day I got up and when I went to the bathroom, I looked in the mirror and, oh, looky, there's a bump in my forehead. Surprise, I got me an implant. Surprise. That was my experience. Did you ever have that implant uh, inspected by a, a, a medical? It doesn't show up. You can put your finger on it. You can manipulate it around. You can see it sticking through the forehead. It does not show up on x-ray. All right. Now, let me get to the rest of the story. Okay, continue. Yeah, I'm awesome. done. We're far from done. Okay. Fast forward. 2003. The 100th anniversary Harley's are out. I'm not buying one. Guess why? Yeah. I remember. Okay. So, my sister-in-law, she hated me. She wouldn't piss on me if my guts were on fire. She wouldn't give me a dime if I asked for a nickel. All right? She hated me. She buys me a 100th anniversary 2003 Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Now, I saw this bike two days before I got it. And what I was told, I was driving my brother's bike. Who My brother and my sister-in-law both had 100th anniversary Harley's. They got them in 2002. Now, this is July of 2003, the end year, the end of the model year. And, and it's, also, it's also roughly 20 years since your experience, right? 21. 20, 20, okay. I went with my brother to the Harley-Davidson dealer. Him and his wife had work done on their bikes. Well, he was going to drive his wife's back home and I was going to drive his back home, roughly 10 miles from the dealership. All right. But I was just happy as shit that I'm going to get to drive my 100th anniversary early. I was happy about that. No problem. And uh, I, uh, we took the bikes back home to this house. Uh, this is on a Thursday evening. While, while we were waiting for the bikes to get ready, the manager of the store comes in and goes, so, which one of these Harleys do you want? And I go, none. And he goes, oh. He goes, well, I got some nice ones over here. I go, I see the one I want. As soon as I saw it, a chill ran down my spine. It was exactly the bike I was riding. 
And it was sitting in the dealership. And he goes, well, if you were going to get one, let's say you were going to get one. And I go, okay, out of shits and giggles, that's the one I'd want right there. And I pointed to it. And it's a 1200, 2003, Harley Davidson Sportster. 100th anniversary model. I said, that's it. All right. But I had no intention of getting it. You know, so, you know, I said, okay, I'll play along. Sure. That one there. Well, I didn't know it. But what had happened was my sister-in-law had asked them to find out what bike I wanted because she was going to buy it for me. And I didn't uh, know. That's weird. Yeah. Well, God works in strange ways. Okay. Well, look, it was my sister-in-law who bought it. But I know that God was the only one that was able to plant that seed in her head. Because she hated me. And why would she turn around and buy me a Harley? Major, major factors in it. Weren't you supposed to die on that Harley? I'll get to that. <clears throat> I told you this gets better. And I told you it gets worse. Well, the worst is coming up. So we get the bikes back home. Well, my brother calls me up on Friday night. Look, Kevin, there was a problem with my wife's bike. I had to take it back to the dealership. So tomorrow I'm going to come and get you. And I'm going to take you back down and drop you off to pick up my wife's bike and take it back home. His wife was a nurse. She worked in an OR, and she was, had to work the next day, so she couldn't go and get it. My brother had to babysit their one-and-a-half-year-old son, so he wasn't going to be able to get it. So I'm like, cool, I get to drive two Harley in one week together. Ah, that's the way I'm looking at it. Let me get up there. All right, he drops me off. I go in, I tell him I'm ready with bike. He said, it'll be out in a couple minutes. So I go outside and I'm smoking a cigarette. And while I'm smoking a cigarette, the guy comes out and he's got that same Harley that I wanted to buy. And I thought, wow, cool. Somebody bought that. That's good. You know? So I'm standing there waiting for a person to come out or whatever. So he turns it on and he does a couple of things and like, you know, nothing's wrong with it for a couple of minutes. And then he points at me and crooks his finger, like, come here. You know what I mean? And I look around, I go, oh, me? He said, yeah. So I go over there. And he goes, well, this is this, and this is that, and this is... I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I go, what the fuck's going on here? He goes, well, I'm trying to explain to you everything about your bike. He goes, this ain't my bike. He goes, yes, it is. It's your sister-in-law's bike. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I was just totally shocked. And here I am. I'm stuck as a Harley Davidson dealer, 15 miles from anywhere. And the only way out is to ride that bike. So I got on it and drove it home. I thought, and I remember, destiny would be fulfilled. I had to bike 15 days. I'm riding along on the street. I come to an intersection. A motherfucker makes a U-turn. 
and it hits me broadside. Lays me out. I'm out cold for about two, two and a half minutes. I wasn't dead. I was just knocked out. Hmm. I wound up spending three weeks in the hospital. It took me 22 months for my bones to heal. I have 11 screws and a metal plate in my left lower leg, holding those two bones together. And it took 22 months for me to heal. It took me another year to get off the crutches. It took me seven years, one month, and 19 days to be able to get back on that bike and drive it again. And when I drove it again, I drove it all the way from Kankakee, Illinois, out to San Diego, California, 2,250 miles away. Let me go back to the time just after the abduction and when you came out of the the experience um did you talk to jeff at all no i never talked to jeff after that there were several times jeff tried to get a hold of me and i avoided him like the plane why i didn't know i didn't know what to expect that he was i know that he had contact with him anytime he wanted to and i was afraid he'd bring him back and i didn't want to have nothing to do with them no more so i i avoided him for the whole uh two years that i was on the ship afterward hmm. did you talk to anybody else about the experience <laughs> are you kidding no i mean i mean ever since you know even after you were out of the military oh, yeah after i got out of the military i started talking to all kinds of people i started doing my research okay and the more i researched the more i learned and the more i learned the more i was able to connect some dots did uh, the you left the subject alone more or less until you got out of the military that's right is that right yeah so and and then you say you got out. Did you get out in eighty five or eighty six? I can't remember. Okay, no worries. Um, and and but that's when you picked up the uh, the research and started really looking into the topic. Well, yeah, <coughs> that was when I was close to being at library where I could go and look it up. All right, I mean, in the military, I was on a ship. You know, and I, I I didn't go to any libraries. Or, well, I just I just wanted to avoid it altogether, being in the military, just for that stigma. And you understand what I mean by that? Totally. Yep. One hundred percent. So you get out, you start looking into this, and you say you found some pretty revealing ideas or some some interesting answers to some of the questions i started researching in the roswell i, okay, I was familiar it. with it but not that familiar with it but since they told me that they knew about roswell and that it was real i wanted to learn everything i could about it from what um you know what is i mean because i already know it's real you know, it doesn't matter what the government says, weather ballooned my ass, you know. <laughs> so 
Well, because it's true. Oh, you're not getting any argument from me. Not not <laughs> one shred of a of an argument from me. You know, so I was in the Roswell, and then um, uh, along the way, I discovered scoop marks. Seen lots of pictures of those and stuff. You know, and then later on, I got into Project Bluebeam. All right, are you familiar with that? A little bit. Yes, I, uh, I'm aware that it's a uh, some kind of a holographic projection program that the U.S. military has um, worked on. ET technology. That that part I was not aware of. No, I, I thought Project Bluebeam was developed strictly from human ingenuity, but that's a that's an ET re-engineered or reverse engineered type of thing, huh? Using ET crap. Not not a, not necessarily crap, but technology in order to make it happen. See 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 how it ties in. That's a dot that ties in. Um, okay, so now Project Bluebeam is related to that. And then I'm learning about witches and witchcraft and sorcery, and that's related to that. Really? Yes. All right. Everything is connected. Everything works on a vibrational frequency. Everything. Everything in the universe works on a vibrational frequency. Electromagnetic vibrational frequency. And everything operates at different frequencies. And different frequencies can activate other frequencies that can create uh, mythological not so much mythological, but mysterious, uh, bizarre, unusual, paranormal. You understand? Yeah. That the, all this phenomenon is created because of vibrational frequency. And it all ties in. Everything is tied in. Here, here, here's my way of assessing the UFO phenomenon. It's an enigma. Wrapped in an enigma. Which is wrapped in a question mark. Okay, so it's it's something that we'll probably never figure out. Well, we'll never know at all. Uh, there's too much to know. There's so much associated with it. Because not all your civilizations and I'm talking about extra-dimensional ones as well, uses all the other things that other associations associate with. In other words, it's like um, quantum. It's quantum. It's quantum mechanics. It is. And, and, and you know, I mean... And I'm not trying to sound flippant. I'm just trying to explain that there is so much that is involved with this that ties in with so many other different things that aren't even associated with this, but they're still associated with it. Here's what I think. I don't know if I was being deluded when I was with them. My research... I have come to the conclusion that the two smaller 
praying mantis beings, the ones that were three feet, three feet smaller than the main character, were maybe clones or AI. They weren't even real. But at the time I was associating with them, I thought that they were real. But my research has shown that they may be that far advanced that I could be interdealing with a robot and not even know it because I wouldn't know the difference. You know, I didn't know that it would be. I, I thought it was the actual energy. All right. That's that's come into my mind in the last few years about what I was experiencing. That's why I say I still haven't got all the answers. I got answers to a lot of questions, but I got a lot more questions that haven't been answered. That's why I started researching. I want as much knowledge as I possibly can. And I have gained a lot of knowledge. And there's a lot of disinformation out there. And you can chase them rabbit holes for miles and then find out that it's all BS. So was there anything else that you learned throughout the period of time that you've researched this topic? I mean, from the time that you started in 85 or 86 until now? Well, I just learned about different other programs that are going on. And the subterranean bases and the other underground bases, Area 51, things like that. You know, basically my... Basically, everything that's been written about the ET phenomenon, bases and extraterrestrials and anything and everything associated with them that you can find, I was researching. Now, I read a lot of articles that didn't make sense. I read a lot of articles that led me to other articles that led me down roads that I thought were the right answers, only to find out it was all turned out to be a myth to begin with. You know, there's a lot of discernment to this. This this field is so wide open. That's why you have so many researchers out there writing about it. And not, and not, and they're now all writing about the same thing. You know? You know. So I mean, what do you want to know? You can look it up. I agree, yes. hundred percent. And that's that's um that's a good point. What I was getting at though is did you uncover any definitive evidence or proof that you can look at and say, you know what, that lines up with what I learned on uh, during that experience? Well, I've read other experiences by other people. And some of the things they say, some of them parallel what I say, and some of them don't. Uh, but I have been able to confirm everything that I said happened happening to other people. You know, they, they said in their abduction experience. Not all of them were with praying mantises. You know, I, I don't know how many people get abducted by praying mantises, right? Most people get abducted by your four to five foot tall graves. You know, when they get in the room, they get examined. You know, the, the, your typical 95% of your abduction experiences, right? And I know there's other, and 
I know there's five other species that are interacting with Earth. Five. All right. And, they and that's according to that's according to the prey mantis right. species well, that, that you experienced. Five told me they told me they themselves were aware of five. They did also say there may be more that we do not know about. Which also goes to show me that the ET phenomenon is compartmentalized within the Central Intelligence Agency and the industrial military complex. All right. Not everybody is working on the same thing. Even though there are different people working on different aspects of the UFO phenomenon. All right. Not all of them are working on the very same project. So that's another wide open thing to this because there's so many dots that can be connected that can also be um, covered up as far as the kind of uh, machinery and computers and things like that that we've gained from ET. I mean, look, my phone, that, that microchip in that phone came from ET. There's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. You know, you're going to tell me some man sat down one day and said, hmm, I think I'll invent the integrated circuit. A micro, microprocessor. Just out of the blue like that? No. No. That's back engineered from uh, one of the craft at Roswell from 47. I, um, they told me in the Navy I had a very high IQ. Not that that means anything. All right. Some people make importance out of it. I don't. All right. I have common sense. I know how to use it. You know, and look, I, I, I'm just like everybody else. I'm trying to obsess under and I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to come to grips with the realities of what I experienced. That's why I say I went into a different dimension because the, the things that people that describe that are so incredibly hard to believe, they had to go into another dimension in order to experience that if they were abducted. If somebody is to choose to believe that, what you're saying, that challenges their own belief system because it's completely outside of what they have grown and and learned throughout their life and their their entire belief system is challenged and in order to accept that what you're telling them is truth it completely they have to change their belief system you're right and that's you're why people are uncomfortable that's why people are uncomfortable believing these type of experiences oh i, I get that and look I, well, I've been laughed at, ridiculed, called a liar, scoffed at, you know, everything for the last, you know, since 85. Probably from 85 up until about 97, 98 is when it stopped. And then, but I really haven't been accepted. I, I've been accepted in the UFO community. I belong to a lot of UFO groups. and. A lot of people value my opinion, you know, and not that I'm saying it's worth anything. It's just that I try to give a logical answer 
to all the comments, my comments. Try to be logical and self-explanatory. So, because I want everybody on the same page. Look, I can tell you the truth. I can't make you believe it. That's not up to me. That's up to you. My life, my life, my experiences in my life are my life and the experiences that I experience. You know, I've had a couple other paranormal experiences in life. I've had time slowed down. Now, obviously, you, you're the the experience that you had was facilitated in in a in a small way by your friend Jeff. But do you think that there that the the others the the ETs decision to bring you on board? Do you think it had anything to do with your your musical aptitude, your IQ? Your the the type of work that you were in maybe a combination. I think it was I think it was the fact that they knew I was above average IQ. Um, I'm sure they had my test scores. They knew that I was a medical personnel. In other words, I was very serious about everything I did. I took my job seriously, you know, because I was I was the face of the health and well-being of the crew. And it was my main main job was to maintain that. So I took all my duties seriously associated with my job. Right. And okay. And I think they thought that I was fairly mature. Uh, you know, cer- certain people seem to be targeted by these entities. And uh, for an example, you were you had experiences later on in life too what with possibly different entities or a different race of entities right the um scoop mark incident was the only other one that i know of since then that i've had that i'm aware of not that i was aware of it at the time it's just that i became aware of it when i saw the scoop mark because i knew what the scoop mark represented you know so that there and I have no idea what race that was and like I said my brother he had your typical four to five foot grade you know that are 95% of your abduction experiences out there do you think your your brother was targeted because of your experience yes I was told about why if I started researching this that if you're a twin and you've been abducted, your twin will get abducted too. I believe that that's accurate. I've talked with a couple of other people and other experiencers have had similar incidents where not only were they abducted and their siblings abducted, but also multiple generations going back and and then it continues on with their children. So I've got it's, a cousin a, too. Sorry, I've got a cousin also who was having experiences when he was three, four, five years of age, and it quit when he was around six. And he's still trying to figure it out. All he gets is flashbacks back to those days, and it, none of them come in the right order. 
and he's confused about the whole thing. All right, but there's no doubt that he he does. And now uh, this one, he's involved in Wicca, which is you know a type of witchcraft study, and um, he he participates in different things. And um, he's had a few experiences that are kind of abnormal. And um, uh, all of them tied to Wicca. And um, I'm just letting you know. But he, so that's three of us in our family on my mother's side that uh, had an experience out of, Everybody else in my family. And of course, everybody in our family thinks we're all nuts. You know, all oh, crazy as a loon. Yeah, well, I don't care. Like I said, I don't care what other people think. I put up with all the ridicule and all the hassle and all that crap decades ago. I'm so far past that, it's not even funny. Have you ever undergone regressive hypnosis? No, and I won't. Why is that? Because... Um, I told you, I was drained. I was fighting when I sat up in the bed on my ship. All right. And the thing before that was one of them putting their hand on my shoulder. All right. So from the time he put his hand on my shoulder until the time I was stopped fighting, which obviously I was fighting because they were doing something evil to me. I don't want to know what it was. I don't need to know. I don't care. Uh, yes, it'll make me aware, but I'm aware of enough. I don't need to know those answers. That's fair. And and just just to put this out there, most people that have had abductions or that experience abductions, they do not want to re- have a regression to find out what they forgot or you know what they missed. Well, I look at it this way. Obviously. The things that I was experiencing then, the reason I don't remember them is because they were able to block it out of my memory. And it must be that bad if they're going to block it out of my memory. So why do I want to try to find it? Obviously, they're protecting me by doing that. A lot of people don't think about that. But if what they were doing to you was so evil, why would they want to protect you from it? Uh, You know, another question I can't answer. I wish I knew the answer. Trust me, I've asked myself that question a few times. But you know what? I don't go that deep into it. I don't dwell that far into it. Because uh, I've already done that. I've gone down all them long caves years ago. I, I understand ago. that. But for, for me, somebody who's interested in, in your experience, uh, it's... It, these are questions that I have that I, you know, when, and it makes sense. when, yeah, sorry, man, my throat's getting a little bit dry. Uh, so I have a couple of other questions, but is there anything that you feel like we might not have covered in, in depth enough? No, I, uh, you know, unfortunately the older I get, the less of this I remember. You know, this happened 40 years ago, just about. You know, and so I don't remember all the details that I did 20 years ago. 
Uh, I wrote my story out, and um, it was published in 2010 is when I wrote it. And it's uh, 30 notebook pages long. And that's just describing a one-hour event. 30 notebook pages So basically what what you've explained to me in this conversation that we've been having, plus probably a little bit more in detail in, in some areas. Huh? Yes. What do you want people to take away from the this experience that you went through and how can it help other people? The only thing I want people to know is that what I'm relating to them is the experience that I experienced while being abducted. And that it is absolutely true, 100%. I gained nothing by lying. Now, like I said, I tell you the truth. I can't make you believe the truth. That's totally up to you. Okay, so let me ask, let me ask a, uh, another question. And this is kind of the same question, but in a different way. Uh, just to just to prompt you, because what I'm trying to get at is, why are you sharing this story with other people? What do you want people to learn from your experience? That Ichi is real. What we think we know about the world and the way the world works is totally different than what you've been led to believe. Well, you have to get ready, because Ichi is going to make themselves known and once they do, whether you're prepared for it or not, you're going to deal with it. And you have a right to know the truth. Our, our government's been lying to us. You know, uh, when's the last time the government admitted anything about ETs and UFOs? Not until 2017. Uh, before that, they don't exist. It's not true. Blah, blah, blah. And now all of a sudden, they release videos. What does that tell you? Uh, well... Kevin, I think um, I think that's a good place to leave it. I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I, I want to see you have a full recovery, get back to playing your music, get back to your family, and enjoy the rest of your days on this planet. Oh, I appreciate that. All right, Kevin, it's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Oh, you have a good night, sir, and thank you very much. <laughs>